PM board bombs. Now, here's doctors Iltapat Hussein and Blake Briggs. Welcome back to another EM Board Bombs podcast where we help you study for boards, but in reality, we help you study for hashtag game life, and that's more important, right? One rapid podcast at a time. My name is Blake Briggs. I'm not joined today by Dr. Hussein. I know, sad face, disappointment. We'll talk about that in a second. For each 15-minute episode, you gain high-yield board knowledge. And for life, as we like to say, come for the stems, stay for the content. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, or Meta, at EM Board Bombs. Dr. Hussein, unfortunately, will not be joining us today. He actually was invited to play at a state Monopoly tournament. Didn't know these things existed, but they're pretty serious from what I understand. He's pretty competitive. I remember when I visited him at his house and saw his family and him, and remember they were all played, they practiced actually these Monopoly games. So even uh, his kids and his neighbors are into this. It's it's very, very intense. So we all wish him the best of luck, and we hope that hope that he wins big. So let's get into the STEM here. Got a really awesome topic today. I want to cover some board-relevant material as well as life-relevant. So you're caring for a 57-year-old man who presents to the ED after a few days of worsening thigh pain. When you enter the room to ask what's going on, he states, quote, Doc, do you want me to start from the beginning? End quote. You hesitate, and with a deep internal sigh, say, sure, go for it. He states that he was on Twitter the other week and found out that he is no longer verified with a blue checkmark next to his name. He states his Twitter handle, at Big Papa Squirrel, has thousands of followers because he posts Twitter shorts about little meals he leaves out for the squirrels in his yard each night. He said he refused to pay the $8 a month for the blue check verification, so he ditched Twitter and decided to mow his lawn. He states he scratched his leg on a branch in the yard about six days ago. You look at the leg and there's some mild erythema, swelling, and warmth. He has ambulatory butt limps. Patient is afebrile in the ED. However, he has tachycardic in the 110s. He states the pain is excruciating when you touch the area. Your bedside ultrasound shows no abscess or superficial fluid collection. Which of the following is true? Choice A. Diabetes is the most common risk factor in all cases. Choice B. CRP and ESR have high sensitivity. Choice C. X-rays can reliably detect subcutaneous gas. Choice D. Hypotension is the most common vital sign abnormality. Correct answer here is going to be choice A. Diabetes is the most common risk factor in all cases. Obviously, right? <laughs> so let's talk about necrotizing fasciitis and necrotizing soft tissue infections. But first, we really have to talk about something very important right now. We just have to talk about it. And that is going to be our premium podcast, EM Rapid Bombs. If you enjoy EM Board Bombs but want a TikTok version of our podcast, that's what our Rapid Bombs podcast is. And we prepare you for boards and clinical practice. We're in the season of boards right now. It's like holiday season for us. This is our busiest time of the year. This is in February. And we're happy to provide you with the information that will make you ace these tests, these silly tests you have to take. Don't waste your time just studying for boards, though. Do both at the same time. And that's because, unlike other EM study resources, our premium podcast is the only one that goes directly to your phone. And we have over 290 podcast episodes and counting. Each episode is just two to four minutes. We drop high-yield bombs in a question-answer format so it's seared into your memory. You'll get multiple episodes to your feed weekly. The key here is you don't want to waste time studying just for boards with traditional question banks. You want to optimize your time by listening to board pearls and life pearls. They're going to help you with the test, of course, but 
They're going to help you more importantly with life and your clinical skills. You can sign up for EM Rapid Bombs at emrapidbombs.supercast.com. And you can also look at the show notes of this podcast as well. It's going to provide a direct link to that website. And of course, you can find the link at the main website at EM Board Bombs. So let's delve into this here. Necrotizing fasciitis is a term for severe soft tissue infection of the subcutaneous skin and muscle fascia. It's rare, but it's deadly. And it has an estimated mortality of like 25 to 35% with treatment, by the way. This isn't something like, oh, you ignore it and it's high mortality. No, this is like, <laughs> even with standard treatment, people die a lot of this thing. It's very scary. The severity of the illness stems from its aggressive spread along tissue planes. And, you know, if it's fasciitis, it's going to be through the blood-deprived fascia layer. The speed of the disease progression coupled with the variety of presentations that patients can have makes it very difficult to diagnose. Now, it can affect any part of the body, but it most commonly occurs in the extremities and the perineum or genitalia. Now, you know, quick aside here for, you know, Merriam-Webster lesson. As we like to say the term neck fascia a lot, neck fascia is really just on a spectrum of other necrotizing soft tissue infections. So there's plenty of other necrotizing infections that we probably see that would make the diagnosis or what we think of as necrotizing fasciitis, but it may not be just, you know, fasciitis, right? Obviously, you can have necrosis and severe infection of other areas like necrotizing myositis or necrotizing cellulitis, right? Anyway, so keep that in mind for the rest of this podcast. We really just did necrotizing fasciitis because honestly, it's clickbait. Everyone knows, <laughs> everyone knows that term. We want people to listen to the podcast. Sorry, got to get those ratings. But otherwise, necrotizing soft tissue infections, the whole podcast we're covering today applies to, to all types of necrotizing soft tissue infections. So anyway, here are some sobering stats to keep you up at night. The rate of limb loss is 16% in all patients. 25% have no known risk factors, which is also scary. Now, if you divide neck fascia, necrotizing soft tissue infections into two categories, you have really polymicrobial, which is type 1, and monomicrobial type 2. Now, polymicrobial is caused by aerobic and anaerobic bacteria, obviously, and it typically occurs in older adults or individuals with underlying comorbidities, especially diabetes, which was the correct answer, the most common abnormality, most common risk factor for those with necrotizing fasciitis. Now, monomicrobial type 2 is usually caused by group A strep or other beta-hemolytic streptococci, and it can occur in any age group and in individuals basically without any comorbidities. Now, there are also two classic subtypes of neck fascia necrotizing soft tissue infections that I like to mention. The first one is Fournier's gangrene. The R is silent, don't worry. It's French. Fournier's, I think it's French, I don't know. <laughs> Phil Twelve was here and asked him to look it up, but... He's not here. He's at the Monopoly tournament. Fournier's gangrene is going to be a perineal and genitalia infection caused by a multitude of bacteria, as you can imagine. A lot of gram-negative, some gram-positive, but mainly E. coli, Klebsiella, enterococci, anaerobes. Very scary stuff here. We'll talk about how to not miss that later on in the podcast. And of course, you have another French condition, Lemire's syndrome. That's going to be a head and neck necrotizing infection caused by mouth anaerobes like fusobacteria. Scary stuff here. Now, the classifications I just mentioned, the type 1 and type 2, and there's also, gosh, if you read some of those like type 3 and type 4, just stop memorizing this stuff. You're never going to be asked on the test. And in real life, it doesn't matter too much because you're going to start the same antibiotic regimen in most of these patients. 
the key to avoid devastating outcome relies not so much on memorizing these types, but on the accurate diagnosis and timely treatment, which not only includes antibiotic therapy, but when to call a surgeon. We have a great review handout of this topic on our website, so I want our podcast to focus on the key pitfalls and how to diagnose this scary condition more reliably. Now, the risk factors we mentioned already, and that was the correct answer, choice A, diabetes. The most common comorbidity for neck fash is diabetes mellitus, which predisposes to necrotizing infections of the lower extremities, of course, perineum, and head neck region. Probably one of the worst conditions you can have internally that will affect your skin. As we all know, diabetes is a major risk factor due to you know, glycemic control and all that for healing of the skin, for cellulitis risk, abscess risk, etc. It's a nightmare. Other common risk factors for neck fashion include you know, cirrhosis, alcoholism, hypertension, chronic renal insufficiency, malignancy. Now, you probably think I'm reading a list, and you're 100% right. <laughs> just reading a list of random chronic conditions. Is there any sense of these? No. It's just the sense that these patients have comorbidities and their immune system is probably not the best. They have other problems going on. Kidney disease, liver disease, alcoholism. I mean, come on. So these patients are just going to be higher risk for other medical issues, especially infections. Now, any recent surgery or inpatient stay in the hospital should really get your attention. Even if the surgical site looks clean, they were in a hospital setting. Hospitals are dirty with dangerous bacteria. It's probably like the worst place you could be if you don't want to get necrotizing soft tissue infections. There's MRSA everywhere, there's Pseudomonas everywhere. Just be cautious of dismissing soft tissue infections as minor, especially if they've had recent surgery. Be very careful of that. Now, let's talk about the presentation here. It's gonna be extremely variable, but the early recognition is really important. Now, it's misdiagnosed as cellulitis up to about like 75% of the time in the initial presentation. And you know, we can't fault that, right? A lot of people may catch these patients at the very early phases. And, you know, it used to be thought that necrotizing fasciitis was this very fast, rapidly progressive infection that wasn't smoldering. Not true at all. You can have a smoldering infection for many days, possibly weeks, and that could quickly or rapidly develop or slowly develop into a necrotizing soft tissue infection. So don't just think that it starts in hours of a rapid infection it's spread you know from the foot up to the knee now that's concerning of course but that doesn't always happen now about 80 percent of the time there's a clear point of inoculation like an abrasion or laceration or injection site or a surgical wound of some type now even in patients without these sites though if they are chronically ill enough they may have transient bacteremia from other sources like a g or a gi source and that can seed the soft and skin areas you know, just kind of like septic emboli, right, to the lungs. Anyway, it just gets worse, doesn't it? Just in case. You know, it's like you do your skin exam, you don't see anything. Well, there could be this, you know, nebulous metaverse of skin infections caused by bacteremia. Like it happens the opposite way you would think, right? Anyway, nice things to keep you up at night. The most common presenting signs and symptoms are going to be, of course, the most helpful symptom ever, right? Pain out of proportion, whatever that means. I know doctors everywhere, like myself, are still wondering what that actually means in each type of patient. Is this just the patient having a different pain threshold than someone else, or do they actually have severe pain out of proportion? It's extremely difficult to judge. No one really knows. So use your clinical gestalt in judgment. That's one of the earliest hallmarks of necrotizing fasciitis, even if it isn't that helpful. Now, other things to keep an eye out for are just common sense things, right? Skin soft tissue infection, G. I wonder what could be seen. Oh, erythema, maybe. 
and there's usually not sharp delineating margins, meaning that there's going to be kind of this very nebulous border that ends and begins where their pain is. Now, there could be edema extending beyond the erythema, maybe. They could have a fever, maybe. And they could have crepitus. My gosh, crepitus is so unreliable. It's seen in less than 25% of cases. Now, crepitus and bulle are frightening. If you see those, I mean, that's a no-brainer, right? If you see that, everyone's going to be calling a surgeon. And they're specific for necrotizing fasciitis, but they're not at all sensitive, like I said. You're just not typically going to see these things. So don't rely on it and don't expect to see it to make your decision. If it's in the later phases, you'll see you know, very obvious things like changes in skin color from red to purple to patches of blue to gray, all scary things, anything that would get your attention, right? Now, the skin findings are due to vascular thrombosis and destruction of blood vessels, all scary things that happen beneath the skin. Now, sometimes there are no skin changes though early on, and the infection could be more subtle initially, or it could be just very deep, right, in myositis. Myositis is very difficult to diagnose clinically without an ultrasound or without, you know, CK or other lab studies. So over the next three to five days or so, there's worsening skin breakdown in these patients as the infection advances, and there could be gangrene. Now, what's the lesson here that we just talked about? You need to do a complete skin exam with patients who either have an undifferentiated fever of unknown origin or they have surgical site pain. This is so critical. I do a total skin exam on my ultra mental status patients, especially those who are elderly from a nursing home. Many of these patients are high risk. They're rarely examined and laying in bed for several days. My program director, shout out to Wake Forest Residency, when I was a resident, once taught during a lesson on necrotizing infections that Pretty much any single elderly patient, especially if they're just kind of moaning in pain or they're altered, you need to always do a skin exam. And if you're having difficulty doing a skin exam, you know, you don't have enough staff to help you, at least look at their groin area. As Fournier's is often missed on the initial evaluation, they have necrotizing infections somewhere, especially if they have a, you know, a sacral ulcer in their lower back, they've been laying in bed for several days. These are all critical points here. So always do a complete skin exam. We are horrible in medicine but undressing our patients. And it's important that we take a good look and do a full physical exam on these people because there's really no solid test to identify neck fash except for your eyes looking at the skin. And that's really critical here. All right, let's keep going on. So shock is uncommon. Less than 25% of patients will be hypotensive with obvious septic criteria. That's why choice D was wrong. Choice D said hypotension was the most common finding. Totally not true. Fever is only seen in about 75% of patients. Again, it's helpful, but it's not absolute. Tachycardia, which this patient had on the question stem, is going to be probably your most common vital sign along with fever, uh, vital sign change. But again, it's not always going to be there. Now let's talk about things that we shouldn't be doing that are a waste of time and they don't really help anything. I'm as bad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. So let's talk about labs. This is where the internal medicine people listening are like, oh good, we're talking about labs. So I'm sure all of you are asking about ordering CRP and ESR and lactates, right? Just kidding. I hope not. They don't help at all. Laboratory findings are generally nonspecific, and you're never going to wait on these if you're concerned about neck bash, of course. Some common lab abnormalities include, oh my gosh, I wonder, leukocytosis, the most nonspecific finding ever for a condition. Metabolic acidosis, if it's later on, you know, along with coagulopathy, hyponatremia, all these things happen later in the course of a severe disease and systemic response, right? Sometimes it may not reach that level yet if it's still a local or regional infection. Yes, you can have elevated inflammatory markers, CRP, ESR, and yes, you can have an elevated lactate or CK. However, none of these things are that specific at all. 
a rise in CRMCK is suggestive of an infection involving the muscle or fascia, you know, as opposed to cellulitis. Now, x-rays are not that helpful at all. They're frequently ordered. I see a lot of people get x-rays and say, oh, God, there's no gas in the x-ray. And I see a lot of my surgical colleagues do this too. Unfortunately, a lot of it's just drilled into their brain as surgical residents as they work horrible long hours and they don't like their lives at all. The diagnostic yield of x-rays, we all feel bad for them. The diagnostic yield for x-rays for subcutaneous gas is, is stupidly low. It's like less than 25%. What a waste of a test. I'm not saying don't get it. I'm not saying don't do that. I know x-ray is part of the standard workup if you're concerned about deep space infection for osteo, but even for osteomyelitis, x-rays suck. They're just not that good at looking for deep space infections. Taking this one step further, you're probably asking, what about CT, right? We order CT for everything nowadays. <laughs> we, we do, unfortunately. CT is also disappointing. It has much better sensitivity than x-ray at picking up gas formation or deep fluid collections, but it lacks specificity. Should you not get it? Not at all. You should definitely think about getting CT. If you're worried about looking for myositis or other deep space infections, remember to get those with contrast, so CT scans. However, it's not going to be absolute, and you should never, ever wait on a CT scan to then call a surgeon. You should call them ahead of time. Are they going to balk, potentially? Are they going to say, you need to get a CT before uh, you know, having me come see the patient? Yeah, but be a big advocate for your patient. Stand up for your patient and demand you know, excellence of care for these people if you're really worried about a rapidly progressing herd space infection. Now, there has been some discussion about bedside ultrasound, you know, identifying hyperechoic foci. You know, it's a lot of sexy stuff people are talking about, but it's not realistic right now for the average emergency physician. Don't get me wrong, I love ultrasound. I do, I do a lot of bedside ultrasound during shifts, but imagine trying to communicate bedside ultrasound findings to your surgeon. I guarantee, I guarantee your surgeon doesn't take people to the operating room based on your bedside biliary gallbladder ultrasound. So imagine trying to explain this one. It's like the small bowel obstruction ultrasound. Um, I don't know how I could ever explain a small bowel ultrasound. I was telling my surgeon, hey, I have a small bowel obstruction. Oh, what's the CT show? Oh no, I just, I just did a bedside ultrasound. Uh, I can't even imagine how that conversation would go. So ultrasound is great to look for abscesses, to look for a focal point of infection, but do not rest your case on an ultrasound. And just think of the average emergency physician. Most of us are not going to just dismiss a case of neck fascia based on ultrasound findings. Okay, so let's talk about the diagnosis because all this is pretty depressing so far. Given that no single radiographic or laboratory test is reliable for predicting neck fascia, there's been a push to make some type of decision-making tool. A commonly used tool to distinguish neck fascia from quote, just cellulitis, end quote, is the laboratory risk indicator for necrotizing fasciitis, also called the Lorenic score. Its sensitivity and specificity for neck fascia is 90 to 95%. Wow, that's pretty good, right? That's going to be a score greater than six. Now, it takes into account the CRP, the WBC count, the hemoglobin, sodium, creatinine, and glucose, basically all these inflammatory markers and markers of, you know, systemic inflammation. However, big key here, despite this score being good sensitivity specificity, you can imagine 10% of all patients with neck fascia still had it with a basically normal Lorenic score. That's not good. Your missed rate on neck fascia should be, you know, 0%, right? This is a devastatingly bad infection with a high mortality rate. This isn't something that we just miss and say, oh, see you next time. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll make sure we catch the other leg infection next time so you're not amputating that one too. Anyway, this isn't something that we are comfortable with missing. So anyway, this score is helpful to raise your suspicion. But if it's low, don't dismiss neck fascia. The score has not been validated. Whoa, that just seals the deal. I know a lot of you were listening thinking, okay, you know, I could still use it, still use it. Oh my gosh, no validation. 
a lot of people are surprised probably because a lot of people use this clinically, but it has not been validated yet. And even patients with a score of zero, of course, may have neck fascia. So is it helpful to use? Yeah. Really, it comes in to be most important when it's elevated. You can use that point to basically convince your surgeon. Uh, and that's what it's pretty much used for. If it's negative, don't report that to your surgeon <laughs> because that's just not going to help your case if you're concerned about your patient. Now, surgical exploration is the only way, of course, to establish you know, main diagnosis of neck fascia and to treat the patient, of course, while determining the degree of involvement and, of course, allowing for debridement. Now, surgery should never be delayed when the clinical suspicion is high. Don't delay it just for CT. We've talked about this. Aggressive debridement is performed until healthy, viable bleeding is reached. You can imagine this is pretty barbaric, but this is what we have going on. These are severe infections, and you just have to be very aggressive. The typical surgical findings include soft tissue swelling and a dull gray appearing fascia in, quote, dishwasher fluid drainage. I don't know what that means. It sounds disgusting. It's basically runoff water from your dishwasher. That gray kind of cloudy fluid sounds awful, but that is typically what's found. Let's talk about the management here and antibiotic choices. The gold standard, of course, is going to be surgical exploration, but you want to do antibiotics extremely early. That means you want to do antibiotics even before you even think about calling your surgeon. And that's going to be essential while waiting for a surgical evaluation. Antibiotic therapy should be started immediately after obtaining blood cultures. And, of course, if they're hemodynamically unstable, they're going to require IV fluids and vasopressors. Now, what are the antibiotic regimens we're thinking about here? In general, you're going to have a broad spectrum of antibiotics. It's going to be pretty much the same we do for everything. The vocin is iltfon I like to joke about. Piperacillin, tazobactam, or zosin with vancomycin or daptomycin, both of which have activity against MRSA. You're going to also add clindamycin. There's the thought that clindamycin decreases toxin production caused by group A strep. Who knows clinically if this makes a difference, but you're going to do that. If you can't give zosin due to a penicillin allergy, you're going to give a carbapenem. You're going to go big or go home here. Hit the home runner. And a carbapenem could be, you know, imipenem or meropenem or ertapenem. Be very aggressive here. Now, if you're worried about Vibrio vulnificus, which is another cause of necrotizing soft tissue infections. And I used to see those when I worked on the coast for a while. Those are going to be, you know, in any salt or brackish water exposure. We have a great rapid bomb on this. So if you listen to our rapid bomb podcast, you would know exactly how to identify and treat these patients. For Vibrio vulnificus, though, you want to add doxycycline to it to treat it. All right, so let's review the key facts here. Pain out of proportion, earliest hallmark. Especially important when you have patients with soft tissue infections. Most of your patients with cellulitis, as you know in your experience, do not limp. They do not have difficulty or cannot walk, right, or cannot use that extremity. And they're going to be not in severe excruciating pain with their cellulitis. So always do a bedside ultrasound. Look for an abscess. Look for a focal point. Always think about indistinct borders of infection, tenderness and swelling beyond the erythema margin, or infection progression despite being on either oral or IV antibiotics already. That's very concerning. Of course, chronically ill patients are risk factors, but that's not very helpful to remember. More importantly, any recent surgery or hospital admission, even if the surgical site is clean, you want to do a full skin exam on all your patients, especially elderly patients, especially ultra-mental status patients, and those with undifferentiated fever. Always do a good, thorough skin exam. Look everywhere, especially the genitalia and groin. This is often missed. These are key points here. I think that is all we have to cover today. Remember to log on to emboardbombs.com, especially emrapidbombs.supercast.com, 
and we will get you fixed up and ready to go for your board exam as well as for EM life on your next shift. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. It has been an absolute pleasure. Hopefully Old Fot will win the Monopoly tournament. We'll let you know how that goes. Bye.